Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. For this episode, we're bringing back our annual series devoted to our popular Meet the Nominees feature film symposium. Now in its 26th year, the event is a roundtable discussion with the directors nominated for the Guild's Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film. This year's nominees include Damien Chazelle, the director of La La Land, Garth Davis, the director of Lion, Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, Kenneth Lonergan, the director of Manchester by the Sea, and Denis Villeneuve, the director of Arrival. Each of these talented directors were gathered on February 4th at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles to discuss the craft of directing and the making of their films with moderator Jeremy Kagan. So please enjoy part one of our Meet the Nominees special and listen to the five nominees share their insights on the challenging stage of editing and their unique approaches to portraying time in their respective films. Highlights include Mr. Villeneuve describing editing as the art of cheating, Mr. Chazelle discussing how his portrayal of Los Angeles as a city with no seasons was an attempt to replicate the feeling of being stuck in a loop during his first few years in LA, and Mr. Lonergan talking about how he made the past and the present seem similar for his film's main character. Gentlemen, please, uh, as we get set up here, you know, I know that all of our nominees have been on the circuit talking about their films, and of course, uh, I know with some of them, the idea of talking about the film is not their favorite part of filmmaking, which we can all understand. And the truth is, obviously, their films speak for themselves. In a way, just watching the work that these masters have already shown us is enough conversation. But this particular audience is a specific audience of your peers. This is an audience of directors, associate directors, assistant directors, UPM stage managers. These are directors who are relishing the opportunity of your sharing your methodologies with us. And so in advance, we all thank you for being here and thank you for your work. It's a strange time we're living in. <laughs> I was uh, looking at George Orwell's 1984 who wrote about time and said, the one who controls the past controls the future and the one who controls the present controls the past. As I think about what that all means, one of the things that is true for all of your films is every one of your films deals with time. And what I'd like to discuss first is, as a director, how you were going to deal and did deal with time. Some of this obviously is in the writing, but obviously making choices to make sure either it's clear or it isn't clear, how do you, in fact, take on that issue of time in each one of your films? And Denis, I'm going to start with you, because obviously your film in many ways is about time. And the choices that you made for us to understand when transitions were happening between what is, quote, now and what is, in quote, in the future. 
the very first scene is really a scene about the future. And it's shot in a specific stylistic way, contrast to, for example, things we're seeing now in this particular scene that we just saw. So how did you sort of, as a director, start to take on how am I going to deal with the differences of time in the movie? Now, first of all, I will say that uh, the main thing for me, the main concern was emotions. That uh, having, because the time machine in, the, in Arrival is Amy Adams. And to uh, make sure with Amy that, from an emotional point of view, uh, if you someone was seeing the movie a first time, a second time, a third time, the movie, the logic, the emotional logic will hold. That was my main concern with her. And uh, I will say that uh, from a stylistic point of view with Bradford Young, we decided that we will shoot, basically the movies mostly shoot in tableau and and. We use the total different, uh, the total different lenses, total different uh, uh, object, uh, not objective. Sorry, I'm uh, not enough coffee this morning, so my English <laughs> is uh, but uh, uh, different lenses, and 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 uh, we were we decided that we will shoot uh, because past was a link with specific emotion and specific moment, and with strong intimacy that uh, we will uh, be like. Uh, uh, in the bubbles of the characters, so uh, the the rest of the movie is not shot like that, but the past is shot with uh, in a very very uh, very close up, very intimate way. Very, uh, and were those shots more handheld, at least? The yes, 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 yes. And as the the main character is getting, uh, let's say, uh, it's something that the audience will not notice but might feel, is that as uh, Amy's character is getting more and more haunted by those visions. Uh, slowly we start to shoot her as we shot the future. I mean, she's getting more and more shot closely and, and held. It was like a way to reassure us, I think, <laughs> as we were shooting to, to have that kind of logic, inner logic. Part of this, and this is going to apply to all of you in the sense of about timing, is editorial. Um, the choices of, did, were some of the choices of when she's freezing and stopping, when she's walking back and forth from the shell, and she has these future past memories. Did you know that these were going to be the, the, the choices that were being made? Was that plotted out beforehand? Yes, yes, yes. I, I had, uh, those were uh, uh, the specificity of the vision sometimes changed in the editing room, but the, 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 those moments were, were planned and, and calculated and, and designed with the uh, cinematographer and Amy. And, and when you said the change in the editing room, can you give us an example where that did happen? The truth is that uh, Arrival was not an easy movie to make. It's maybe my toughest cinematic experience. Uh, The editing process was a a long and and exciting and painful one. (laughs) And and because the thing is, the story and the the inner structure of the the, was clear and the screenplay character were clear, everything, but the the process, the learning process, we faced uh, some uh, challenges uh, regarding logic and uh, regarding uh, rhythm and, and tension. And uh, we had to compress and to... There are some moments, like honestly, the, the moment where we... If you saw the movie, there's a moment where we fall into a kind of documentary style when one of the characters, one of Jerry Mariner's characters, start to explain to us what happened in the, that is something that uh, Joe Walker and I came out in the editing room in order to honestly 
anything is the art of cheating. You know, it's like sometimes <laughs> you just say, look there, look there, look there, because you know that you're pushing your story. And, 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 and uh, it's, it's, we work hard to make, uh, to, to make sure as well that the, uh, the, the logic, that, sorry, that the, uh, emotional, the, 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 the emotional journey were clear and that the, and from uh, the audience will be challenged enough intellectually, but uh, uh, we figured out that if the movie was too much of an enigma, uh, we were missing the catharsis uh, mm -hmm. impact of the movie. So there was, we trying to find the right equilibrium. Me personally, uh, uh, at the beginning, the, the, my cut was a bit more obscure. Mm -hmm. And as I was moving forward, I, I, uh, with Joe, we decided to give a bit more to the audience to be, it, make it more clear because I realized quickly that, you know, in a screenplay, words are powerful. You know, when it says, uh, oh my God, uh, those flash backward and fast fact flash forward, it's easy to read, but uh, to convey, uh, we realized, Joe and I, that we were against un uh, hundred years of uh, cinematic language, you know, yes. that once an audience thinks that it's the past to reverse that thought is uh, not an easy thing. And, 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 uh, it was a long, long editing process in order to give just enough information and to keep the pleasure and still keep the challenge of the movie, I hope. Yeah. When you say that um, your cut was more obscure, who were you listening to who was telling you in the relationship in the editing room, got to make this clearer, who was telling you it? The thing is that uh, I deeply love editing. It's my favorite part of the film process. If I, 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 if I wasn't a director, I would be an, edit, an editor. I deeply love it. But I can't edit by myself because I feel that uh, I could, but I know definitely that my movies are, are better because I'm working with a strong editor. And I love that tension in the editing room. And uh, it's for me, it's, a, it's not about winning who is right or wrong. It's about what's best for the movie. Mm -hmm. And for a movie like this one, we add honestly, to um, more than some movies, you can just keep it for yourself and show it to the audience once it's over, when it's finished. Like the, I had several times, I, I, but for this specific one, I had to do test screening with friends of people who didn't give a, we cannot swear. Yeah, is it? Yes, you can. It's fine. <laughs> okay. it's a, yes, you, but you have to yeah. do it in French, but you yeah, can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or man. No, no, but it's, 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 People, do, do, you understand, that don't care about me. No, no but it's, it's just uh, um, making tests to see what the audience was getting because I, I was feeling too close to the... So it's really, uh, it was like a, a, a collaborative process between Joe and I. And I must say that he was more of a strong advocate to give more. And uh, I, I, I'm happy I followed him. This yeah. is a question for all of you. In fact, I'm going to ask all of you answered, and then Kenneth, I want to ask more specifically about how you dealt with it. But in talking of time, would each one of you just tell us approximately what your pre-production time is, approximately what your shoot time is, and approximately what your edited time was? Do you kind of have an idea of that for yourself, Denis? Your your pre-production? No, boy, time is blurry right now. Uh, <laughs> it's it's. I I think I had like. Uh, something like six months of uh, prep, but there's like little intimate prep that I had with my production designer to, mm -hmm. to all the design of the movie was done. Uh, and I love to storyboard a lot. More I'm, I'm, I'm evolving in, as a filmmaker, the more I love to storyboard mm -hmm. than to alone with my storyboard artist. Got it. 
And uh, so it's like, a, I would say a six month, the shoot was like, I think 50 days. Mm -hmm. And uh, editing went forever. I mean, it was like, uh, <laughs> we were like, um, I would say uh, overall a, a good six months of post. Got it. But uh, the, it, we edited the movie until the last second because it was a very fragile project. I mean, uh, it's like uh, the movie came together. You know, it's like either color timing can have a strong impact on a film, but this one, like uh, with the VFX part of the main characters were, uh, as you know, uh, CG. So it's like, uh, and they were part of the, the, the dynamic of the of the the, stru the, the, the dramatic structure. So it's like it, it, the movie came alive, like the Frankenstein stand just at the last second when you push the final button. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, really, really at the last second. Very, there's like a movie like Sicario that in the, at the director's cut, I, I could sleep. I was okay. I knew the movie was there, you know. Without, but this one, it was like a nightmare, I want to say. Yeah. <laughs> Nightmare's over, I yeah, think, yeah, for, yeah. at least for now. Yeah. Can it just, in terms, I just want to hear the, 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 the pre-production time, shoot and post, the, just general, so we have an well, It's idea. a little hard because we, I think we were scouting in Cape May a year before we started shooting, but then we took time off and you're worrying about the schedule. And then I suppose we officially started hiring people two months before we shot, uh -huh. so it was pretty tight. We were also wrestling with actors' schedules a lot, and we were trying to fit our shoot into the winter because the winter and the progression from winter to spring was so important for the movie. So I'd say about two months of really intense prep, but then you know a year earlier scattered. And then uh, the shoot was uh, 32 days, I think, which was really intense, uh, too intense, yep. <laughs> far too intense. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I think we finished... Uh, and then we edited over the spring and summer. We were we were mostly done by October, but then I think October, November, and then uh, we were at Sundance in January. And then I spent six months doing about three weeks more worth of work. So <laughs> we'll hear more, Damien. Uh, Pre-production on this, uh, uh, production time and post-production. Just a general idea, yeah, so we can have a um, well. I guess somewhat similarly, I mean, we had a lot of stops and starts, so all that kind of, you know, moments where we thought the movie would go and then it would fall apart, so uh, there was scouting time built into there. I think once we finally kind of were hard prepping, it was about three three months um, before shooting, but again, that, that was kind of after a few other iterations. Um, and then the shoot was 40 days, um, and, uh, and then post was... A while. I mean, it was it was uh, maybe about eight eight months, eight to nine months. Um, but that you know, including sound and color and everything. Garth, for you, how the pre-production, uh, production, post, a general idea about the time. Yeah, like I was involved with the screenplay as well with Luke Davies. So, and part of that was meeting the family and going on location in India and trying to retrace through steps. So, like I was on and off for about a year, and I call it pre-pre-production. So it's not official production, um, where you work your ass off. And um, I was uh, probably doing that for a good four or five months because it took about that long to find the child as well. And then the official, you know, pre-production was about eight weeks. Um, and we shot for six weeks in India and four weeks in Australia. Director's cut was about uh, 13 weeks and um, probably another five or six with the producer's input. And, uh, you know, probably similar to these guys, another six, seven months of post-production, yeah. 
and Barry, for you? Pre and yeah, we, we had kind of like a pre-pre also because we had to cast local actors in Miami. So myself and Adela Romanski, first producer on the project, we started going to Miami about a year before actual pre-pro, uh, just trips here and there. Mm -hmm. And then it was about eight weeks of actual prep, 25-day uh, shoot. And then uh, it was about a very slow post process because <laughs> we were just calling in a lot of favors. So we'd work like three or four months, and then we'd pause, then we'd do some sound, then we'd pause, do some color, then we'd pause. Um, but yeah, but it was, uh, it was exactly the amount of time we needed. Got it. Kenneth, your movie as well deals with time. Um, there are sequences where there are clearer flashbacks, but you even open, if I remember correctly, sort of on the past, and then we don't know the next moment when we're finding him shoveling, doing his work, whether that is that time or not. So how are you, as a director, perceiving how you're going to communicate time shifts in, in your movie? Well, it's interesting, um, and it's also interesting to hear about Arrival, because um, we ended up... In the script, I was when I was writing the script, I was really concerned with exact. You know, it's a little complicated. There's a there's the past with the with the Kyle Chandler's character um, and his history of heart disease, and then also just regular flashbacks like the one in the boat with the little kid. And then there's the history of, of Casey Affleck's character and his. And so I ha in the script, it, it'll say seven years ago, eight years ago. And then it'll say this scene is directly follows the previous flashbacks, and just for myself, because I marked it all out in the chronology. And then, but then when uh, directing the film and also editing it, everything tended more towards obliterating any particular difference, perceptual difference uh, between the past and the present. Um, that was partly by accident, and but it was partly one of the a series that when that happens, when you have that series of accidents that all point in the same direction, and you realize it's not so accidental. Um, because we were concerned with his hair and should he shave and can we schedule the shoot so that he looks different and all these concerns, were, we were, simply weren't able to answer them. And it then became um, a question of just his costume and his behavior. Um, and Michelle, we were able to do a bigger difference between her look in the past and the present, but also her character had changed the way she looked very deliberately and consciously. So, um, and it all worked, and then, but then, and then we got the editing room that idea seemed really strong to not make a big difference between the present and the past because he's somebody who's carrying his past around with him so actively that for him there isn't much difference. And Jennifer Lame, my editor, said fairly early on, she said she loved the idea that there are two stories going on simultaneously, not so much that we're seeing flashbacks, but that we're seeing inside his head and outside of his head. Um, and, and so there's no stylistic difference in the flashbacks whatsoever, and there's no there's very little introduction to them when we cut. There's a couple of times when you see him, I think only maybe one or two. In the script, there was a lot of Lee sits in the, in, in the chair staring out the window, cut to seven and a half years ago, exactly. And that became simply opening the refrigerator and then suddenly being seven, the movie moving to what he's thinking about that was seven years earlier. In the process, um, as with the knee, did you go through, is this clear? And, and when it wasn't, where were you in terms of making editorial choices? Um, it seemed to us that we were able to, it would, that it was either clear right away or it would be clear soon enough. Uh, and, I, and that was reinforced after the first couple of screenings, which were small friends and family screenings. And, you know, 
some people knew right away that the flashbacks were flashbacks. Some people were a little confused by the first one, but then they caught on, and that seemed to me to be good enough. Um, <clears throat> there was one, the very, very first, well, except for the opening scene, the very, very first flashback was just a cutaway from him uh, driving the car through winter to sitting on the boat in a yellow T-shirt and looking kind of cheerful. And that one was actually, it's the shortest flashback, and it's the one we worked on the most because it was because after the first screening, which was for 20, many people thought he had gotten on a boat and then back in the car because we had failed to do it well. Um, and I was like, no, no, he's not on a boat suddenly. He's, 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 he's back in time. Didn't you get that? And they're like, no, no, we didn't get that. <laughs> so, so we played around with whether that should be two shots, whether it should be introduced by the water and then the boat and then him. And the, anyway, and, but we really liked the idea that it was just like a, uh, an image of him in a different circumstance, and then you'd catch up later. Did you do any sound change in that image? Because I know the image, and just anything to give another aspect to, okay, this is shifted. Yeah, we always, we were always interested in what we were doing with the sound when we were cutting, when we were going into the flashbacks. I, I think the sound, there's, a, there's, there's driving sound, there's winter sound, and there's that kind of car roar, and that goes away immediately. And I think, I don't remember exactly, there's, I think it's a total of three shots for that little yellow shirt flashback. And I think we changed the sound completely, but I think there's a, it goes MOS for the first cutaway, for the first shot of the water. And then we, then when you show him in the yellow shirt on the boat, then you hear the sound of the wind and the boat motor a little bit. And then you're back in the car and you go back to the motor sound. But for the big flashback with the reveal of, of the fire, we, uh, we played a around a lot with what you're hearing. Sometimes you'll hear him walking when he's in the lawyer's office remembering, and then sometimes he'll cut to the walk and you won't have any sound. And that was, I don't exactly, I was just sort of feeling our way through it to, to mix it up. It's interesting you say that part of the editing process is oh, feeling your way through it. Well, almost the whole thing, I would say. I mean, all this analysis is afterwards. Right. So what's fascinating too <laughs> is that, you know, sometimes when we look at films, and we, we, we have to acknowledge, and I think we all do, that it's an evolutionary process. It's, you know, it's not finished until that moment when you <laughs> push your button, but it, yeah. it, it keeps shifting and changing. That's sometimes the joy of the process, and sometimes it's frustration. I mean, you've got literally seasons that are part of this, and issues of, of, of the choice of how you are going to go through time with these characters. And I'm interested sort of what you, as a director, I know this is writing, directing, but still as a director, what you needed to, or felt you needed to do to make sure these transitions were as clear as you wanted them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there was just that, that basic structural idea of the seasonal kind of chapters um, that I kind of loved at the, you know, as something to own right away, mainly because LA, coming from the East Coast, LA struck me as a place without seasons. Um, and, and I remember just feeling that kind of, uh, that sort of stuck in a loop kind of feeling my first few years in LA, where, you know, at first I was really sort of delighted that I could be on the beach in January or something. Um, and that suddenly became very depressing because cause you sort of wake up and you don't realize a year has passed the way you feel it on the East Coast, and you're still on the beach, and nothing has changed. <laughs> and, and so, uh, so that kind of, to me, that like that that felt actually germane to the idea of the movie of, of people who are, uh, in a little way, you know, sort of living in their heads or living in their dreams, not really able to project those dreams into reality, at least for most of the movie, and. And just the way that Los Angeles and the way that time kind of feeling very elastic here can, can 
compound that feeling. So that, that was kind of, um, that's where the chapter device came from. And then, and then, um, and then it just became, you know, a matter of trying to play with, play with that a little bit, play with double meanings, you know, I mean, obviously sort of beginning on a hot day where it's winter, that's very LA, but then later on, you know, uh, spring, summer, when the sort of uh, romance seems to be blossoming, fall, when it's falling, you know, I mean, sometimes <laughs> I thought it, it was kind of nice to be that literal, um, and then and then to close the loop at the end, um, but to jump ahead five years. Um, that was something I always loved in, in um, just kind of old novels and love stories that would sort of take place over a kind of discrete amount of time and then jump ahead for an epilogue, you know, this kind of idea of a, of a five-year, 10-year, 20-year-later epilogue, um, uh, like in Great Expectations or, or, or uh, some Balzac novels or, or obviously in the, in the Brothers of Cherbourg, uh, you know, in movies, which um, looking I just at that loved five, that idea. Looking at that shot, which starts, I think, is her getting out of the car, what was, I mean, was that part of your process of, oh, how am I going to introduce this change, not only with that title, but with... What was that process for you to, of even choosing that particular shot to get us there? The, the first shot of the yeah, of, or be on the of, five years better. Yeah. yeah um, well, it, it it's. Uh, I mean, I think so. I mean, it begins with. Uh, I remember we sort of begin with a palm tree that you know we sort of uh, reveal as painted and pull it off. Um, that was almost that used to be more of a built-in uh, device. I used to kind of begin every season with a palm tree um, uh, and. And then that came from this whole opening overture that we used to have in the movie uh, that we lopped out in editing. So that was kind of, we took out this giant overture in editing and then suddenly all these palm trees throughout the movie seemed kind of not to have any place. Um, and so we just started lopping off palm trees, but we had this, this one at the end that still felt, uh, even though it hadn't been seated as a device the way it was in the script, it still felt, um, again, kind of beautiful and 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 seemed to speak a little bit, especially at the end, to you know the illusion of it all. Um, and then it became about kind of timing, at what point do you actually flash five years later? And we, we played around with that. We played around with never flashing it. We played around with uh, doing it right away, you know, like winter, five years later, as a single card, um, um, and, and everything in between. Um, and, uh, and we sort of landed on, I mean, it was down to just kind of, you know, number of frames of trying to let you live in winter for a moment, thinking that you had just gone a few weeks or months later, and then seed in this one extra bit of info right as the car pulls up. Um, since this is an editorial decision, and as I said, timing to some degree, for, or at least dealing with time for all of us, is, is much in the editing room. There's a moment when one of the songs, uh, in, and I think it's in their house, where they both sit down at the piano, and you kind of flash to, or it seems to be, their process of his, his in the rehearsal process and performing and hers and getting the play ready, and then you come back to the piano. And I, was that one of the moments where in the editing room that happened, or was this also pre-planned? Uh, that, that was written that way. Um, uh, and so the, the, you know, the, the, there was a lot of playing around within the basic structure of that, but, um, but I liked the idea, I mean, especially kind of, I, I've always been, I love the idea that in a musical, you know, every song is this kind of, step out of time, you know, you can kind of, it gives you room to play with time a little bit, you know. Um, obviously, there's certain real-time numbers that just kind of happen. They're either diegetic or they just sort of happen in front of you. But then, obviously, you can use songs to course over a montage or to 
Um, but I liked the idea here of kind of jumping forward in time with this song, but then cycling back at the end as though, as though it's, you know, it, it, it's like I, we, my editor and I, Tom Cross and I, we, you know, we would describe it as they, they're sitting there at the piano, not really knowing what's coming. And there's a certain kind of uh, point, you know, a certain sort of uh, sadness, I guess, to that, that they, they're singing about hope and about dreams coming true, but, but, um, but something about the music has a little melancholy in it, and then certainly something about the images that we flash of their what's going to happen to the relationship has this kind of built-in sadness to it. So when you go back to them, um, we project all of that onto them, even though with the actors, obviously we just shot it in real time. Since that, that observation about the, each musical number having its own, in a sense, time, I mean, you have the wonderful scene on, the, on top of the Hollywood Hills, which is, I think, a wonder. Um, so therefore, that piece of music and dance is that piece of time. And then there are other pieces like you break up, like obviously the wonderful sequence we just saw or the sequence in the planetarium, mm -hmm. where time really sort of shifts. So you talk about, again, the consciousness of, of what choices in time you wanted to deal with. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the, the, there's, there's, uh, I, I remember weirdly being very inspired by, um, uh, there's like a throwaway part in, in uh, Before Sunset, um, uh, the Linklater movie where Ethan Hawke is like talking about a book he's always wanted to write and how it's a book about, his idea for the book was to do a pop song, uh, have, it, have the book last three minutes long, the, minute, the length of a pop song, and within that is a whole story because this guy's listening to the song and thinking about this or that. And, um, but the time span of the book is three minutes, you know, but it's a full saga. Um, and so it just seemed to me like it's kind of, obviously movies tend to be a little more difficult to play with time in that way than literature. You can't really do the, you know, the Madeleine Proust kind of thing mm -hmm. as easily. But musicals, I think, allow you to do that because, because, uh, because songs, the musical numbers are these kind of projections of characters' inner feelings. So it's interior language, you know, you get to kind of really live in how they see the world. And that means that you can flash forward in time. That means you can circle back. It means you can... Um, it means you can stay right there with them, but completely upend other rules of physics, whether it's gravity or, um, you know, whatever. I mean, you can kind of, uh, anything the imagination can do, you can do without, but, but keeping this framework of reality. That's what I like about musicals, that they still exist in the real world. Musicals are not utter fantasy. They are, they are, uh, uh, they, they, they start on, on real terrain, you know, and it's about how you lift up from there and come back down. It's that sort of transition that's beautiful about them. Thank you. Well spoken. A little bit of time change in your movie, huh? A hell of a lot of time. <laughs> it was a nightmare. Yeah, so at least, at least there are five or six. If there are small ones, there's like, uh, you know, five weeks later, six weeks, I mean, two months later when he's under the bridge, there's lots. So how were you as a director dealing with it? I had a cry in the shower, really. <laughs> was, Big uh, shell. <laughs> yeah, it was going. Well, I mean, we were honoring the truth of the story too, so we were kind of bound by the time of the story and what happened, the events. There was also the one thing that was interesting was about identity and about, if you think about it, Saru only had five years in India of his life and then 25 years in Australia. Right. And in many ways, he thought he was more Australian than Indian. So that was a kind of a fascinating thing to play with. Um, and then also when he starts to uh, dig up the past later on in the film, we see both times come together. So past and present kind of come together. And that was a really exciting thing to explore as a director because, you know, we, we could play with sound and the editing was uh, kind of experimental 
and you just didn't kind of know where you were, so you were kind of inside Saru's head where he was trapped between two worlds, the past and the present. When you say that about the editing, I'm thinking about there are sequences where, for example, his mother is looking for him by mm -hmm. the water, and he's also, in, as an adult now, Dev is walking into the water, so there are similar kind of moments here. But then you introduce Gurdu, the, the, the brother, yeah. in Australia, so now... Not only is time shifted, but space has shifted now. And I'm, how did that evolve for you? Well, I mean, one of the challenges for me as a director was um, Google Earth. I mean, it's boring. People on computers, phones, tablets, it's some of the worst thing you can possibly shoot. So that was incredibly challenging. Um, my inspiration was Peter Weir, Picnic at Hanging Rock. I thought mm -hmm. if he can make that rock powerful, I can make Google Earth powerful. <laughs> so I had to kind of uh, dig into that. Um, but, you know... It was all what was not spoken about the character, what he was hiding from everybody, which is not visual. Um, so one of the things that I thought could help is to just bring Goody back. Because uh, for, for me, he's like the spiritual totem of the film. In many ways, he is his guardian angel. And um, I just thought just, and not do it in a tricksy way, just boldly place him there. Because for Saru, he's real. You know, he feels his brother. We're like, we all feel who we love beside us in a very visceral way. So just by putting him there is a visual way of interpreting that. But that was really exciting to bring him back into the contemporary. I mean, I just love taking him to the, um, the shopping mall. I don't know what you, yeah. what you call it here. Um, and just taking uh, a boy from a, a village from 1987 and placing him into this modern environment for me was just a very exciting proposition as a director. So. Choices of lenses for those, because I remember there's one time when the two of them are running up, up on the mountain and they see or he sees him by um, a rock formation quite far away. And I think you have a couple shots of that. Did you ever say, okay, I need to shoot this just as it would be? Did I need to, cha did you need to change lenses? Or what was going on as a director making the choices to have this work in time? Yeah, well, that whole sequence um, was where, again, I was playing with two worlds colliding. So when they go for that run with Lucy, they go very high up in Hobart and suddenly... The world is, is below them like a Google map. And it was like we were inside his head and the world was kind of uh, entwining. I mean, I'm just a big believer in those kind of heightened moments that need to feel very real. And um, there was something about that rock formation that was very indigenous to me. It felt um, almost like a connection to India um, in somewhat. So to see Guru on those beautiful indigenous rocks um, and just the simplicity of a very, very long lens. I do like a long lens. Um, I thought just it, it just had its own power, so it was just very simple. Um, yeah. Setting it up, I'm interested. There, he's pretty far away. Yeah, uh, yeah, how yeah I'm you, known how, for that. <laughs> how, did you, how did you set up that particular shot? Well, you know, I, I knew where I wanted to put him, so you just have to send someone who's ever willing <laughs> way off there before you even get the coffee out of the truck. Um, and you just go, yeah, a little bit more high, a little left. And you come back 20 minutes later, yeah, you're almost there. Um, and, uh, yeah, look, I, I did that on top of the lake as well. It's just one of those, um, you know, I do like getting the cameras into places you don't usually get them. And you're willing to wait. Yeah, totally, of course. That's what it's about. <laughs> well spoken. We we're going to go back to that willing to wait. Barry, for you, you've got three sections, three, three total different times. And I know you've talked about in casting, you weren't interested in necessarily making these people look like each other. But in terms of any behaviors, since there are behaviors, there's even a mention here of you know, him being silent in the nods, 
What, how were you dealing with the tr these three time areas as a director and choices of how you're going to shoot and also how you're going to direct your actors? Yeah, you know, we tried to approach uh, each section the same way. You know, I, I didn't want to direct Alex Hibbert, who plays the kid in the film, differently than I directed Travante Rhodes uh, because I was trying to make myself and the camera and my cinematographers right there. I wanted us to be the control um, on the piece, the sort of connective tissue uh, throughout the three stories. So I treated them the same way. And what we tried to do was cast them in a way where when you're looking at Travante Rhodes, who plays the guy with all the muscles, you would still see uh, Alex Hibbert. And uh, for us, it was about trying to build a piece of uh, immersive cinema, was how we described it. So there was going to be no exposition. You know, the, the film was going to be this process of the audience walking a mile um, in our character's shoes. Um, and so a lot of things we did with the camera uh, were about trying to immerse the audience in the perspective of our main characters. Um, it's interesting because you guys, uh, the clip you guys showed of Travante walking into the diner, yeah. we shoot him in this like this cowboy from behind. And if you see the trailer, we shot all three of the actors at some point in their stories and a cowboy from behind. So we tried to unite the piece in that way. And um, talking about time, I, I love the clip you guys showed because you know I'm the writer and the director, and I'm looking at the script, and I see I have this like 15-page scene coming up. <laughs> when over the course of the film, most of the scenes have been two or three pages, and so. The two longest shots in the film, as a director now I'm speaking, are those two shots at the beginning of the diner. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when, when anybody sees the film for the first time, they're probably wondering, why the hell am I watching this guy put his damn shirt on and brushing his hair? And then he's walking in this cowboy, the doorbell rings, and now we're just gliding. It's because I know as a director, I have to help the writer out and reorient the audience. Because now time for the last 30 minutes of the film are going to progress much differently than they did for the first 80 minutes of the film. So. We were always trying to be aware of what we were doing as the sort of craftspeople uh, to sort of relay this very immersive experience uh, to the audience, even to the point that in the beginning of the show, uh, we're shooting on these hawk anamorphic lenses, which are very, very scary lenses. Um, because? Uh, the focus is just really, really bad. Um, because we shot, we shot wide open for the first like two thirds of the show. We were pouring NDs in front of the lens, but we wanted this sort of aberration around the main character. Mm -hmm. And then as you get towards the end of the film, we're opening, we're closing down. We're more at a four, five, six in the okay. diner. So now you can see more around That's him true. because he's now getting to the point where he can face himself. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we tried to use whatever limitations we had um, as assets and try to, again, do whatever we could to harness the tools to orient you guys in the perspective of the, the character. It's definitely a first person film. When you were doing the actual transitions, mm -hmm. um, there's a, a flash of light, and I'm interested in that. Oh, this is my favorite thing. So I'm a termite. On set, I'm a termite. I just, I just chomp, gnaw on wood, you know? And so, uh, you know, we, it's a 25-day shoot. We didn't have, like, all the sort of big parameters and whatnot, the foundation. And so whenever we were, so this is a no-powder show. Uh, we, I wanted everybody to shine. So we were constantly putting oil and spray on all the actors. And so... Uh, because, I, you know, we were shooting on the Alexa, and I knew we were going to take the highlights, but also hold the shadows. I wanted the skin to glow. That's how my memory of black skin was growing up in Miami. And so the, the second AC would always hold the slate up against the lens when they were spraying the actors. And I'm, I'm a termite. I was sitting there. I was like, I'm watching these blips of time go across the lens because the time is still going. So what you're literally watching between chapters is the time code on the slate. Great. Way, way out of focus. Because to me, it's Eisenstein, the information's in the cut. So I wanted that information of the time passing to be in the film. Uh, so yes, it's the slate, what you're seeing. Nobody's asked me that question before. Yeah, yeah it's the slate. I've done my job, I can leave now. <laughs> yeah.
We hope you enjoyed listening to part one of this exclusive discussion. You can watch the full video of the Feature Film Symposium on our website at dga.org events. Also, be sure to download next week's episode, where our five Feature Film nominees will continue their conversation. You can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut by subscribing on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.